0: Last time we were looking at the God structure of the Bible, we looked at the Old Covenant, which you probably called an Old Testament. Remember all those promises that were made in the Old Testament? We're going to see those kept in the New Testament. So let me just remind you, as we were looking at that Old Testament or Old Covenant, there's different genres. We we see here. I've given you this little table that says in the Pentateuch we saw the pointed issue was holiness and. It was all pointing us to Jesus to show us to to long for the perfect priest. The historical books were showing the point at issue there. was all about leadership, and it was pointing us again to Jesus to show that He is the perfect King. Those prophetical books probably uh, point at issue there is wisdom, and probably showing us again the function is that Jesus is the perfect King. In the prophetic books, we saw the point at issue was loyalty. It was pointing us to Jesus to show that he fulfills the office of prophet. So notice he is both priest, king, and prophet, the only one who can fulfill all those three offices. Dr. Benjamin Warfield wrote a wonderful book called Revelation and Inspiration. As he talked about the Bible, he said this, quote, on the screen here for you. It is no less than 66 separate books, one of which consists itself of 150 separate compositions immediately stare us in the face. These treatises come from the hands of at least 30 distinct writers scattered over a period of some 1,500 years and embrace specimens of nearly every kind of writing known among men histories, codes of law, ethical maxims, philosophical treatises, discourses, dramas, songs, hymns, epics, biographies, letters, both official and personal, and prophecies. Their writers, too, were of like diverse kinds. The time of their labor stretches from the ancient past of Egypt to and beyond the bright splendor of Rome under Augustus. We may look, however, on a still greater wonder. Let us once penetrate beneath all this primal diversity and observe the internal character of the volume. And most striking unity is found to pervade the whole. The parts are so linked together that the absence of any one book would introduce confusion and disorder. The same doctrine is taught from beginning to end. Each book, indeed, adds something in clearness, definition, or even increment to what the others proclaim. End quote. How can there be such a unity among 66 books? Because in reality, it's only one book written by the Holy Spirit, one author. So as we come to the New Testament today, and we're going to see all those those prophecies fulfilled let me give you just a very quick storyline of the Old Testament in fact it's probably the quickest storyline of the Old Testament you may have ever heard your entire life start your watches we see in the beginning that God creates the entire universe in six days and then in the very third chapter of your Bible we see the first human sin and the world comes under the curse we call it the fall there's a little diagram here, not a diagram, a timeline of the Old Testament for you there on the screen. And so the world goes on for several generations after Adam and Eve until it it just, uh, God's long-suffering, he is long-suffering, praise God. But the world just degenerates to a point where God just finally says, I've had enough! And so he judges the world with a worldwide flood. He saves one family, eight people. His name was Noah. So the generations following Noah don't do not uh, do any better, really. Humankind goes on for a while, but then they rebel at the Tower of Babel, and so God decides, uh, again, I've had enough, and so He disperses them from the Tower of Babel by giving them languages, and He sends them around the world. A new beginning is promised as God shows His faithfulness to a particular person, It comes up in Genesis chapter 12. His name is Abraham. And then after a a brief period of prosperity, Abraham's descendants, who are now called Israel, uh, eventually became became slaves in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And then after 400-something years, we have what's called the Exodus, in which uh, God raises up Moses and He leads... The Israelites out of Egypt. Then they wander around in the wilderness for forty years. Eventually, though, during that time, uh, God gives them the law at Mount Sinai, and He ma- He makes a covenant with His people Israel. Well, eventually, they make it to the Promised Land, this land that God has given to them. And and uh, during a, a short period of time, they're they're ruled by judges. But eventually, God raises up kings for Israel. Uh, and eventually, there's this kingdom established there in the Promised Land under Kings David and Solomon. And so that represents the highest point of Israel's history. Uh, King Solomon builds a temple for God, which houses the Ark of the Covenant, and it also uh, uh, functions as the center of Israel's worship of Yahweh or Jehovah. But shortly after Solomon's death, they kingdom of Israel is divided into the northern and southern kingdoms and uh, eventually the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC and then the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC Uh, you say well why did that happen well it was basically because of idolatry they refused to worship the one true God alone and so God judged them using those heathen nations well there were some survivors that were carried off into exile into Babylon and they remained there for 70 years and then, then there was a remnant that returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and, and uh, other stuff like the temple yet Israel never regained its previous glory if you will under Kings David and Solomon and so that ends the Old Testament history and it doesn't end with good news in fact the the last news in the old testament is is either the word curse or destruction it's bad news curse and destruction and so when you finish your old testament you're you're left longing for the perfect priest the perfect king and the perfect prophet and so if that's all you had in your bible and you rip the entire last part of your bible out the new testament you might wonder well is there any hope well, my friends, there is. Praise God, we have a new covenant. So, this, this new covenant we call the New Testament is important. And some of your Bibles, you look even here at the title of the first book in the New Covenant, it says, some of them, might, mine says, the Gospel according to Matthew. And so, you've got to ask the question well, what is gospel? Gospel, by the way, just means good news. It's good news. You say, well, what is the good news? What's that all about? Well, the Bible answers that question for us if you look at the beginning of each of the Gospels. Look at the uh, the beginning here, like in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. First verse in the New Covenant says that it's, it, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look at it. These aren't my words. These are God's words. And look at this. Who is Jesus. He is the son of David, and the son of Abraham. I'll talk more about that in a moment, but uh, I just want you to see it's good news here. Look at uh, the the next book, Mark chapter one. I want you to see this isn't just the one off. God repeats this for us. These are His words, divinely inspired by God Himself. Look what He says, Mark one verse one says it's the beginning of the gospel, or the good news. What's the good news about? It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. <laughs> okay? See the pattern. Go to Luke chapter 1. Let's see if the pattern continues. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, says, Inasmuch... What's, what what is is Dr. Luke talking about? Well, let's turn to the other book. The Holy Spirit enabled him to read or write. Uh, turn over to Acts. Acts chapter 1. Notice this pattern again. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, verse 1, says in the first book. What's that? Talking about Luke. <laughs> he wrote Luke. Now he's uh, writing Acts here, and he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So there you go. The good news is about Jesus. So let's, again, let's see if the pattern continues. What's the Apostle John say? John chapter 1. John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The logos is the he, or, sorry, Greek word there, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So notice He was in the beginning with God. He's also the Creator. Verse three says, "Who is this person?" Verse fourteen tells us it's Jesus. So there you go, my friends. There's the the, the Gospels plus Acts. So this this good news is about Jesus. And the book of Acts here, of course, helps to clarify what Luke was saying in the book of Luke. So this good news, what is the content of the good news? Notice the content is all about a person. It's about the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. What are they doing with that content? What's the Holy Spirit doing with all that content? Well, I'm very thankful He didn't give us 613 more laws like he does in Exodus and Leviticus in particular, no, not more laws. The function is to introduce us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. yeah, notice introduction. that's why we need the next twenty three books in our New Testament that help explain who is this person who's been introduced to us who what 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 do we need to know about his works? Well, that's why we have the next 23 books in your Bible. But before we get there, let me just explain something about the Gospels, starting with Matthew. Look at this on the screen. Who is Matthew? Well, Matthew is a Jew. He is an apostle. He was called by Jesus Christ as one of his 12 apostles. So he is an eyewitness. He's, he's someone who spent like three years with Jesus. And so, he's writing to the Jews. And if if you read the book of Matthew, it should be obvious, because his book is saturated with the Old Testament. In fact, it's it's one of the three books in your Bible that has the most Old Testament quotes. There's more Old Testament quotes in Matthew than almost any other book. And he even starts with a genealogy, which us Gentiles, us non-Jews, You may not be real interested in that because it's not your family tree. But the genealogies for the Jews was really important. So those genealogies is there designed to document who is Jesus, what are Jesus' credentials, why do I need to pay attention to Jesus? Who is He? Well, in Matthew 1.1 it shows Him to be the son of David. So what's the point? Why do you need to sit up and take notice of this? It's because that's Christ's royal ancestry he's in the line of david but matthew 1 1 says he's also the son of abraham why is that important abraham's the father of israel and so so it shows that that christ is a jew or he's an israeli if you will this is christ's racial ancestry and so matthew's presenting jesus as the messianic king So the Jews should see Jesus as their King. He is their Messiah, the one the Old Testament said was going to come. So as this Christmas, you think about Christmas, you need to be asking, well, why did Jesus come? Thank you for asking that question. Why did He come? Well, look at Matthew 1, because Matthew tells you why Jesus came. Look at Matthew 1. Put your eyeballs, not literally, figuratively, on the page. Figuratively, at verse 21, look what Matthew tells you why He came. Because verse 21 says this, That is, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. Why call Him Jesus? Why is His name Jesus? For He will save His people from their sins. There you go. There's your greatest problem. You need to be saved from your sins. (laughs) And that's why Jesus came. Well, then you come to the second book in the New Testament. You come to Mark. He's different. He's also a Jew, but he's not one of the apostles. But basically, this becomes the Apostle Peter's gospel, because Mark is a close friend of the Apostle Peter. So when you think of Mark, you can think of, it's, it's kind of like the, the gospel according to Peter, basically. And in this case he's not writing to the Jews to the Israelis he's writing to the Romans. And Mark is presenting Jesus as a suffering servant. He's fulfilling all those Isaiah prophecies as a suffering servant. Now why did the servant come? Again, thank you for asking that beautiful question. It's really important. So look at Mark chapter 10 Mark ta- chapter 10 Mark tells you why Jesus came in his first coming Mark 10, look at it. Verse 45. Verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to set you free from the slave market of sin. He came to deal with your greatest problem. Are you noticing a pattern here? <laughs> you should. So Mark's Gospel is the Gospel of the Lord's actions, uh, the Lord's deeds. And so that's why one of the key words in the book of Mark is the word immediately. Immediately. Just used over and over again. It's, It's the shortest of all the Gospels. Mark gets to the point. He's not beating around the bush. Immediately Jesus did this. He went there. He said this. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Just getting into his actions. But then you come to Dr. Luke. You know how doctors are, right? Medical doctors. Your GP. right? This is Luke. He's a Greek physician. And again, he's not a, an apostle, but you can think of this as the gospel according to the Apostle Paul. This is the gospel according to the Apostle Paul. He's a close friend of the Apostle Paul. And he's being a Greek, a non-Jew. He's writing to the Greeks. And you would expect a GP or a medical doctor to give a very full account of the birth of the greatest baby who's ever come to planet Earth. And that's exactly what he does. Christmas time, we love reading Luke chapter 2. And so he provides a very full account of the birth and the whole infancy of Christ. We won't take time to read that whole thing. You'll you'll probably do that at Christmas, I would imagine. But you you come to Luke chapter 2, and uh, you, you you might also expect a medical doctor to go into great detail about uh, Jesus' childhood. So let's uh, let's see what Luke has to say about Jesus' childhood. How many verses does he give to his childhood? Well, look at Luke two, verse forty. This is twelve years of Jesus' life. I'm going to read to you. You ready? Put your seatbelts on. Click. Make sure they're clicked in. You ready? Luke two, verse forty. Twelve years of Jesus' life. You ready? Verse 40 says this. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Okay, you can undo your seatbelt. There you go. The ride's over. What do you think? That's it. That's all he says about twelve years of Jesus' childhood. I don't know. Did he throw temper tantrums? No, of course not. He he didn't sin. You, know, you don't you don't get a whole lot of well, what was his? You know, did he have teenage acne? I, you know, you don't get any of that sort of sort of stuff from Luke, right? That's not. He doesn't care that about. He doesn't care about that. And then you come to verse 52, and then it covers years 12 all the way to year 30 of Jesus' life. Again, all in one verse. Look at Luke 2, verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's it. Very short. Sweet, isn't it? So why would Luke do this? He's writing to Greeks, these, these non-Jews. Well, he has a point he's trying to make, because Luke's trying to show that Jesus is a man. There, there was a philosophy floating around during this, this time or First century and second century that that uh that anything physical was evil and everything spiritual was good, and so you know there's no way that um that that a god could become a man, you know, that just didn't make sense because God's supposed to be good, but anything physical is bad, and so Luke's showing that Jesus is a man, and, and the Greeks were fascinated with humanity, and so they're they're quite happy to hear about all this stuff, and so he's presenting Jesus though, not as just any man, he's presenting him as the perfect man. So he focuses on his humanity. Now, why did Luke say that Jesus came? Glad you asked. Look at chapter 19. Chapter 19. Are you noticing a pattern here? Look, look for the pattern. Luke 19, verse 10. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came, the first time that is, to seek... And to save the lost. Who are the lost? Well, that's that's the ones who have sin, that Matthew and Mark told you about, right? So those of us with sin—that's everybody—we need a savior. And so the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek us and to save us. And then you come to your fourth book in your New Testament, the book of John, who was a Jew. He was an apostle. He's in that inner circle of three with Peter and James, obviously an eyewitness of Jesus. He lived with Jesus, been taught by Jesus. What does he do? Well, he's a little different. He actually begins his gospel with a theological introduction to Jesus. So look at John 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Again, verse 14 tells us, well, who is this Logos? Who is the Word? It's the One who, who came and became flesh, the One who lived amongst us, He dwelt among us. He is the One... is balanced because he is full of both grace and truth so john's writing to all christians as you can see here now he he's got a different purpose he wants to present jesus as god you say how do we know that well john's he he's pretty clear in chapter 20 he tells you his purpose What he's trying to accomplish in John 20, verse 31, when he says, These are written. So, all these words he's just written in his Gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. There you go. John's just told you why he wrote the book. So, let me put it together in a table for you. So in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call the Gospels. They all have a different purpose. So some people who are very critical of the Bible wonder why is there four different accounts about Jesus. Well, there's good reasons for this, my friends, okay? Right? So look at the portrait here. They all are giving a different portrait of Jesus. So Matthew's trying to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King. Mark's showing you that Jesus is a servant. Luke's showing you Jesus is a man. John's showing you that Jesus is God. There's no contradiction with any of those. He is all of those at the same time. So notice the the different audiences there, writing to different audiences. Matthew shows you that he's writing to the Jews. Mark's writing to Romans. Luke's writing to the non-Jews. John's just writing to all Christians attempting to show you that Jesus is deity. So, I love the balance of the gospels, well balanced. As they remember, what are they attempting to do? They're they're attempting to introduce you to the person and work of Jesus Christ. How do they do that? Well, look look who is Jesus. What is what's his identity? Well, he is fully God and fully Man in one person, and he's going to be, remain that forever. But Mark and Luke show that Jesus is human. He is a human being, a real human being. And then Matthew and John are showing the deity of Jesus Christ. So notice two books in your Bible, well balanced together, showing you that Jesus is the God man. 100% God, 100% man in one person, and he's going to remain that forever. So then you come to the fifth book, fifth book in your Bible. It stands alone in its own genre, its own literary style. We call it the book of Acts. Acts just means these are the works, these are the doings. What does the title say? Well, if you look at some some of you might have a Bible that gives you a fuller title than just Acts, the title says that the main actors here are the apostles, right? That's what your Bible probably says, because mine says the Acts of the Apostles. Well, may I just remind you, the titles in your Bible are not inspired. Okay, those titles were written by men. Uh, I have a really strong hunch that the Apostles would disagree with that title. Let me tell you why. Look at Acts chapter 1. You tell me, who is the main actor? Who is really doing the work in the book of Acts? It's the doings and the works of who? Okay, Look at Acts 1, verse 23. One, chapter 1, verse 23. It says, They, that is the disciples, they put forward two, so they were trying to replace Judas, remember? Because Judas went out and hung himself. He committed suicide. He's not. He wasn't even a believer in Christ. Uh, so they needed to replace Judas because he wasn't an apostle. So, uh, so they put forward these guys: Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justus, and then also this guy named Matthias. And they prayed and said, "You Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen." So who's doing the work? Who is the one choosing who's going to be the new apostle to replace Judas? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is re- is the one who's doing the choosing of the new apostle. All right, you say, well, that's not conclusive to you. Well, look at uh, chapter 2 verse 32. Chapter 2 verse 32. Who's the one who sends the Holy Spirit? Verse 32 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So who sends who sends the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus himself said in the book of John, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm sending the comforter to you. Okay, look at verse 47. What's Christ doing in verse 47? Cuz it says that uh the the these believers were praising God, having favor with all the people, and Jesus, that is Jesus Christ, the Lord added to their number. Day by day, those who were being saved. Who's doing the work? Who's doing the acts? The Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, I could keep going, but uh, I'm not going to belabor the point here. Christ is the one doing the work and the acts. It's not the apostles. It's Christ used the apostles, but they're not the main actor. And so these passages prove that Christ, by the way, is the one who is still building his church. Remember in Matthew chapter 16 and 18, he says, I will build my church. So what's Acts doing here? Well, Acts uh, contains the activities of someone who is no longer living on planet Earth. Christ has ascended, but nevertheless, it's, it's his Acts. And so Acts tells us what to do with all of those facts that were introduced to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What's the function? It's the proclamation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we got a lot of sermons about Jesus going on in the book of Acts. And so Acts is an interesting book. It covers the first 30 years of the Christian church. Well, some people wonder, well, how did they do How did they do? Well, well, let's ask the question, first of all, what were they supposed to do? (laughs) That's the beginning of the book of Acts. Look at Acts 1, verse 8. What did Jesus tell them to do? He's the Lord of the church, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What did he say? Acts 1, verse 8. So Jesus ascends to heaven. Here's what is said to them. It says, Acts one eight. But you will receive power, and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. How did they do? Well, go to the last chapter, Acts 28. Acts 28. Look at verse 30. Acts 28 verse 30 says that he, Paul, lived in Rome for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. What did he do while he's in Rome? He proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. (laughs) Interesting. So, how'd they do? By the way, one generation, 30 years. You have the last chapter in this book. It says they took the gospel to the ends of the earth and they did it, by the way, they did it without the internet. They had no cars. They had no trains. They had no airplanes. They did quite well. (laughs) Here they are. Capital city of the Roman Empire, and even people in Caesar's household are coming to Christ. (laughs) Don't you love it? I love it. Okay. So notice it's all about Jesus. We've seen it's all about Jesus in the Old Testament. It's about Jesus in the Gospels. It's about Jesus in the book of Acts let's see if the pattern continues moving on into the epistles which uh, epistles just means they're letters going all the way from Romans to the book of Jude who are they writing to? well these books were written to churches mostly uh, also some individuals that uh, were introduced for us in the book of Acts why are they doing this? Why do we need the epistles? Why do we need these letters? Well, because remember, in the Gospels, Jesus was introduced to us. In the book of Acts, He's been proclaimed to us. And so, as you proclaim and introduce this person, of course people are going to have questions. And so the epistles are answering these questions. So here's the function of the epistles. It is the explanation of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we need twenty one books in our Bible to do this. <laughs> Let me just use the first one to show you how this works here, Romans chapter one. okay, We don't have time to read all twenty one of these, okay? so so you get the point from reading just the book the first one, the book of Romans, okay. See how it explains the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans 1. Put your eyeball on the page here. Romans 1. one says, Paul, he's the human author the Holy Spirit uses. He is a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Covenant. Scriptures of the Old Covenant, what's it about? Concerning His Son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, let's read on the verse 6, because it says, Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 16. Key verse in the book of Romans. Look at verse 16 because it says, Paul, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is good news. Why? Why shouldn't we be ashamed of the gospel, the good news? Because, what? Look, look what it says. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So, what are the epistles doing based on just one book out of all these epistles? Well, the epistles are showing us how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans is teaching us, of course, what is our greatest problem, right? That's the whole point of the first three chapters of Romans. The first three chapters of Romans showing you your great need. It shows the entire world stands guilty before a holy God. Well, that's a problem. So praise God we have the epistles to show us uh, who is this Jesus, explaining the person and work of Jesus to us. Let's look at the next one, Galatians chapter 1. Sorry, it's not the next one. Skip over First and 2 Corinthians to um, one of the first of the epistles, actually, is Galatians. The book of Galatians, written to this region in the Middle East there, Modern-day Turkey teaches us the death of Christ pays the penalty for our sin. Galatians 1, verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? Remember, this is an explanation of Jesus, his person and his work. Because it says, verse 4, look at Galatians 1, 4, Who gave himself... For our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And you should rejoice by saying, Amen. Truly, truly, I agree, that is true. And so, Christ's substitutionary death for sinners is the only hope that anybody has for salvation. It's your only hope... to free you from the slave market of sin. Then you come to one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Ephesians, which teaches us that Christ is the center and the source of all blessings to us. I'm I'm very thankful for the book of Ephesians. It kind of helps fill out more about Jesus, explaining a lot more to us. What are the spiritual blessings What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, look at Ephesians. By the way, this has got to be the longest sentence in the entire world. What I'm about to read to you is one sentence in Greek. Welcome to the Apostle Paul. Starting in verse 3. You ready? Verse 3. Again, buckle your seatbelts in if they're not... Buckled, because verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed as in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, comma, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, in insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, comma, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, comma, to the praise of his glory. Period. Wow. Try reading that without a breath. Impossible. Anyway, but there you get the point. What's he doing? It's all about these spiritual blessings. What does it mean to be in Christ? What What does it mean to have this glorious inheritance? What exactly am I inheriting as a Christian? Well, there you go. You don't get all that in the Gospels. You don't get that in the book of Acts. So, praise God for the epistles. Well, the Bible doesn't end there, does it? You have one more book in your Bible. What's the point? (laughs) You have the revelation. Notice I said revelation, singular. It is not Revelations, plural. It is Revelation, singular. Sorry, that's one of my pet peeves. So, I'm not going to ask you to turn to Revelations, chapter 1, because it's one big revelation. Who's it about? Look at Revelation 1, verse 1. I'm I'm glad you you guys ask such great questions. Thank you. Because notice what it says in the title. They got it right because it comes from the Bible. It is the revelation according to John. Because the very first verse in the book, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this is what? The revelation, who's it about? Of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant, John. Praise God for this last book in our Bible. What's it revealing? Revelation reveals Jesus now and as He's going to continue to be in the future. (laughs) You say, well, do I need another book in the Bible to show me this? I mean, we've We've just been introduced in the Gospels to Jesus. He's been proclaimed in the book of Acts. He's been explained in the epistles. Do I need another one? Please. Yes, you do, by the way. Because you've never seen Jesus like this before. You say, I haven't? No, you haven't. Because Jesus is not a little teeny baby in a manger. He's not. Look what it says. Chapter 1, verse 12. Revelation 1, verse 12. Look what John sees. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe. He's talking about Jesus, by the way. So notice Jesus has a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And, and what does he do? What, what's his response? Well, verse 17, when I saw him, what does John do? He fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Oh, praise God for that. There you go. So there that's what the the revelation of Jesus Christ is about. So what's the function? What's the function? There's a, I put it in a table for you. It's the perfect intended ending of the work of Jesus Christ. You know what is Some people read the book of Revelation and they don't get it because they say, well, actually, most of the book of Revelation, isn't it about a seven-year period of time called the Tribulation? Yes, it is. In fact, that's what most of the book is is about. It's, it's not about heaven. It's about this seven-year period of time called the Revelation, where Jesus Christ, He's the main actor. He's just throwing down judgment after judgment, 21 of them, seven sets of three, you can read about those all the way from chapter 6 to 19. You say, man, that's a bunch of bad news. Yeah. There's also good news. <laughs> because everything's going to end exactly as God intended it to end. It's going to end exactly as He wants it to end. If you don't believe me, look at chapter 20. Revelation 20. You say, isn't there some bad guy out there named Satan? Yeah, he's real. He's not a joke. You need to take him seriously. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. Okay? He's not a joke. And So look what Revelation 20 tells us about Satan. Uh, Verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven... Holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, he seized the dragon. Who's that? Oh, well, that's the ancient serpent. You know, the, the one who is the devil and Satan? Yeah, that's the dragon. Uh, that, you know, that ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, and, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it, and sealed it, sealed it over him so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended after that, he must be released for a little while. So at the end of the millennium, he's going to be released. But look what happens. So, verse 4, "...I saw these thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So what happens to Satan? Well, look at verse 7. Here's what finally happens to Satan, because it says when the thousand years are ended, Satan's going to be released from his prison. He's going to come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there you go, my friends. That's the end of Satan. See, God, God said this place was created for Satan and the demons who followed Satan. He's going to be defeated. But that's not how the Bible ends. So you come to chapter 21 and 22 and it tells us, That God has to destroy the present universe. This earth you and I live on is going to be burned up. Everything's going to be burned up. Why? Because it's currently under a curse. It's under the curse of sin ever since Genesis chapter 3. And so you come to this new heaven and a new earth that Jesus is going to make. And so look how it all ends. Revelation 22, verse 6. Revelation 22, verse 6. So here's what's told the Apostle John in verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy behold i am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done notice what jesus says i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may be, they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city of, by the gates. Outside the city, that is, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of of the book of this prophecy God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book he who testifies to these things says surely I am coming soon amen come Lord Jesus the grace of our Lord Jesus be with all how does the book end amen it's true isn't it so there you go my friends That's the different genres of the New Testament. All have different functions. But again, just like the Old Testament, they're all pointing to Jesus Christ. Praise God. We have the introduction in the Gospels, the proclamation in the Acts. We have an explanation of the person and work of Jesus in the epistles. And we get to see the perfect intended ending to the work of Jesus in the last book in our Bible. And so, for you, my non Christian friend, if you have never put your faith in Christ alone, you, you don't know what it means to be freed from your greatest problem, your sin problem, you are still guilty before this holy God, your sins have not been forgiven, you are on your way to hell. My friend, listen closely to verse 17. Look at verse 17, the last book in the Bible. It says the, the verse gives you an invitation. Jesus is inviting you to come to him. It is your only hope, the only solution. You must drink of Jesus Christ. Because in the book of John, Jesus says, Drink of Him, and if you do, you'll never thirst again. Why? Why drink of Him? Because He's the water of life. You say, well, wow, that's, that's very precious. How much will it cost me? How much will it cost you? Well, I'll Look at verse 17, my friends. It costs you no money absolutely no money whatsoever it should cost you everything but notice it is without price in fact it's priceless it's priceless in other words receive jesus christ believe in christ that costs you nothing it costs christ everything so god the father what does he do he gives us his son jesus christ as a free gift and it is solely by His grace. You have not merited it. You have not earned it. You could not earn it. There is no way you could earn it. And if you try, you'll spend all of eternity, billions and trillions and trillions of years, burning in the lake of fire, trying to pay for your own sin, never accomplishing it. It is without price. Don't try it on your own. And my friend, if you are a Christian, look at verse 7. Let me ask you, as you look at verse 7 there, are you keeping the words of this book? You say, well, how do I keep this book? (laughs) How do I do that? Well, my friend, you must study it. You must meditate upon it. You must obey what it says. You must share what it says with other people. Don't hoard it. That's how you keep it. Kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Kind of ironic. You keep it by giving it away. By thinking about it, meditating upon it, and memorizing it. So God gives you a wonderful promise. If you do that, by the way, look what he says. You will be blessed. There you go. You want to be blessed? That's how you do it, my friends. Then look at verse 20. As you look at verse 20, notice Jesus has said, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. He said that several times. So I ask you, are you ready for Christ's return? Are you? He said he's coming again. Do you believe him? So what do we have to do? Well, we are exhorted in Scripture to be looking, to be watching, to be ready. Live your life in such a way as if Christ is coming back right now. And so that's going to have a huge effect on your life. You know, for example, are you going to watch pornography? Are you going to sit in the dark looking at your smartphone watching pornography if you thought Jesus was going to come and see you watching the pornography? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that. That would be extremely embarrassing. I would be ashamed. So we need to live in light of Christ's coming. So glorify God by worshiping Him. All your life should be worship. If it's not, then it's idolatry. You're worshiping yourself. And so the Bible's all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said so in Luke 24. It's all about Him. So let me ask you, is your life all about Christ? Is He your greatest treasure? Do you love Him with all? May God enable us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for... revelation he said in Luke 24 it's all about him so thank you we're so thankful for that it really helps us to interpret the scripture we are thankful for your spirit whom he sent given to us every believer now is a temple of the Holy Spirit we as the body of Christ are his temple thank you for that wonderful blessing and thank you for the scriptures who have introduced us here to Christ, pointing us to Christ, explaining the person and work of Christ. And we're thankful you haven't left us hanging. We know you're coming again. Thank you for revealing that. We're thankful that we we know what heaven is a little bit like. We we know what eternity is a little bit like. We We know what we can long for and look forward to. May that be where our treasure is, our heart is with Christ there in heaven. So give us that kind of a heart. Transform our hearts and our minds that we would think accurately and faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.